there's a, a a phrase that's painted on the entryways to the both ALU campuses, and it's a phrase that the founder Fred Swanaker likes to use, and it is simple: do hard things. You know, it is the responsibility of those of us who have positions of privilege and influence not to do easy things, to do hard things. And so will changing higher education be easy? No. But, you know, if you accept the leadership position in this in this industry, then I think the challenge is to do hard things. And change is hard, but it's necessary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher education's most creative thinkers and doers. In today's episode, we're pleased to bring you our conversation with Dr. Brian Rosenberg, President Emeritus of McAllister College in Minnesota, and the author of the recently released thought-provoking book, Whatever It Is, I'm Against It. Join us as we follow Rosenberg's career trajectory from English professor to college president. While not setting out to become a president, his leadership journey has been driven by a passion for embracing new challenges and a deep understanding of institutional culture, which he regards as vital for fostering change within a college setting. Rosenberg doesn't hold back as he discusses the pressing challenges facing higher education today, from questioning entrenched structures like faculty tenure and traditional lectures, to advocating for experiential learning and technological integration, his observations are a clarion call for transformative change. For the emerging leaders in higher education, this episode is a treasure trove of wisdom. Rosenberg provides grounded practical advice based on extensive experience, offering a roadmap for those who aspire to pioneer educational innovation. So are you ready to rethink what higher education can be? Tune in to this compelling episode with Brian Rosenberg, where we challenge traditions and envision a new era of learning and leadership. Brian, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious Hue community today. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Thanks for having me. Our listeners are always interested in the the backstory of our guests and the leadership journeys of our guests. Now, in your case, you have uh, an interesting journey. You started as a faculty member, as a tenured faculty member, and then moved up the ranks, wound up eventually in the presidency at McAllister College, where you served, I believe, for 17 years. Is That's that, correct. Is that correct? That's correct. And so can you tell us about your leadership journey? How did you wind up uh, in the presidency? And as you consider your tenure, which is actually a long tenure these days for college presidents, what do you consider, uh, what are the things you're proudest of in terms of your achievements in the role? Well, as far as my leadership journey goes, I did not grow up with the dream of being a college president. Uh, I, I actually decided pretty early in my career as a college student that I wanted to be a, a college professor and an English professor. And uh, for most of the 15 years that I did that, I assumed that I would do that for the rest of my career. Uh, and through a combination of things, curiosity about how institutions operated, uh, a, a desire not to become that old guy in the corner office who had been doing the same thing for 40 years. Uh, when I was offered an opportunity to become a dean of the faculty at Lawrence University, 
uh, I looked into it and I decided it was something that that interested me and that suited my skill set. And after five years of doing that, uh, it seemed like a natural move into the college presidency. And so I went from there to McAllister. Uh, I, I never lost the feeling that my primary goal was to educate students. I just was doing it in a different way, uh, perhaps in a more indirect way. You know, as, as far as my time at McAllister, I get asked all the time uh, the question that you asked, that is what do you consider your most significant accomplishment or accomplishments? And, and honestly, it's not a question I tend often to ask myself mm-hmm. for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it just feels sort of weird. Uh, and secondly, I think you can't really measure the impact of a presidency often until many years after that presidency is completed. When I when I look back on some of the of the most impactful presidents at McAllister, the things that they did really were things that benefited the institution ten or twenty years down the road. So, with those provisos, I think I would say, if I, if I'm trying to be as honest as possible, that the The most important thing I did was to change the culture of the institution. McAllister, when I got there, and to some extent remains, a very highly self-critical institution, which is not unusual in higher ed, uh, which is fair and important. You always want to improve, but I think it's also important to celebrate the things that you do well and the things that you do that are important. And so I made it my mission when I arrived at McAllister uh, to try to to help people feel pride in the institution, uh, even though it was imperfect. Uh, and I think over over 17 years, we did see that in the attitude of the students toward the college and the engagement of our alumni in fundraising in, in all sorts of ways. So I, I like to think that it is a more tight-knit and collectively supportive community now uh, than it was when I arrived in 2003. So that's the thing I would probably point to. Well, that's a really big thing, as you know, changing the culture of a college or university is a really difficult, can be a very challenging thing to do. And it takes it takes a lot of time, but also um, some uh, keen understanding about how to do that. So- Well, the first thing, I think, I think the mistake that, I I don't want to be a person who lectures other college presidents. I think the mistake a lot of new presidents make is trying to jump too quickly into uh, a vision of change without understanding the culture of the institution that they're joining. So I really took my first year at McAllister to just learn the place. And, Mm -hmm. And I think that if you had asked people after a year, there would have been a lot who said, What's this guy's vision? He he doesn't he doesn't seem to have a vision, and honestly, that was very deliberate. I didn't want to try to articulate a vision until I knew where I was, and so you have to understand the culture, and then it does take time, which is one of the reasons why these very short college presidencies are problematic. Yeah, for sure. So when you were trying to understand the culture, what what sorts of things were you looking at? or looking for? What what are some of those indications or indicators that told you, ah, this, this is the culture at McAllister? Well, I was I was a voracious consumer of any information I could get about the history of the college. 
Uh, it's amazing what you can find when you dig into the archives of most colleges and universities about uh, previous decisions that were made, board meetings, presidents, um, faculty meetings. And so I, I, I dove into that archival material. Uh, I asked the provost who had been a long-serving faculty member to tell me, you know, if I'm going to spend an hour with 10 faculty members to try to understand McAllister, who, sh who should they be? And I don't just want the people who are who are the most supportive. I want I want people who are the most representative. And so I, I had 10 hour long conversations during my first semester with a range of faculty. Uh, and they ranged from people who were really positive about the institution to people who were not. Uh, and it really helped me understand the, the range of views within the faculty culture. And then initially I did spend a lot of time uh, in the in the dining hall, at sporting events, trying to interact with students, uh, and also trying to interact with alumni. Uh, so you know, most presidents do some sort of a welcoming tour. And I made sure that mine were less about speaking and more about listening. Mm -hmm. So I think if you add up the the history, the conversations with people on campus, the conversation with alumni, uh, you can get a pretty good sense of the institution that you're joining, but I, that takes time. And and for me, it, it it felt like the first year or two really was the time to to go through that learning process before I started saying, all right, here's here's where I think we need to go. Sure. Well, obviously, time well spent. I'm I'm always interested in the stories that people tell you when you're on a campus and then trying to make sense of those stories in terms of what those messages are about the place kind of under the surface. So I would imagine you heard a lot of really good stories in your conversation. I heard many stories, yes. <laughs> so let me ask you about your new book. Congratulations, first of all, on the Thank publication you. of your book, whatever it is, I'm against it. I love the title, published by Harvard education press and i know you're getting a lot of press about this book i just read something in inside higher ed uh this morning featuring the book and in, i think an interview with you so can you tell me what the motivation was or the inspiration for writing it and from having read it and it's a terrific it is a terrific read i really recommend it to all of our listeners um it's clearly a reflection of your your philosophy, but also your own leadership experiences. So how did it come about? I Again, as with so many other things in life, I didn't set out after I, after I retired from the McAllister presidency to write a book. Uh, I think there were two key things that, um, that gave me the, the motivation to write it. One is the teaching that I'm doing, the teaching that I'm doing at the Graduate School of Education here at Harvard is about higher education. So I, I've taught classes in the future of the liberal arts college, uh, ethical questions in higher education, uh, transformational models. And so it gave me an opportunity as a teacher uh, to take a look at the discipline, the, the industry in which I'd spent my life. If you want to be a good teacher, you have to understand what you're teaching. And so it, it gave me an opportunity to step back and look as a sort of as a scholar and a researcher rather than as an acting college president. Uh, and, and then it was the work that I've done for the last three years outside the US. 
Yeah, I, I write in the book about work I've done with the, the African Leadership University and stepping out of the bubble in which you've existed for your whole career. You know, when I look back on my career, I, I entered essentially America, entered American higher education as a student at 18 years old. And I never left it until I left McAllister uh, many, many decades later. Uh, and having an opportunity to look at higher education from a totally different perspective uh, really raised the question and, and a perspective where change and rapid change is absolutely necessary. Uh, mainly question why it doesn't happen within American higher education. And I wasn't interested in simply pointing fingers. I was interested in trying to understand the structural and cultural reasons why this industry that talks about transformation in every one of its mission statements really doesn't undergo a lot of transformation itself. So I think it was the combination of the teaching and the work, the work I'm doing doing in Africa that that led me to think, all right, this is this is what I want to write about. And and having said all that, I think if I hadn't had a very persistent editor at, at Harvard Education Press, I still probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. It it's a it's a really wonderful contribution to the dialogue that is so critical right now. And I want to ask you to go deeper with mm -hmm. uh, the structure uh, and in the book and your critique, if you will, uh, you do critique the traditional structures in higher ed, things like classroom lectures, faculty tenure, suggesting that these are key obstacles to transformative change, as you've just mentioned. So can you say more about that? I mean, you've been in the trenches, so you've been part of this system, um, in what ways are they limiting influence? So there, there, there are two, the, the, the question of the lecture and the question of tenure are two different kinds of questions, I think. Uh, you know, the lecture is an example of a practice that continues, I think, relatively unexamined within higher education. Uh, and the, despite the fact that there is a, a growing body of evidence that suggests that uh, students and human beings in general learn more effectively by doing than by listening. And I would never argue that lectures should go away, uh, but I do think a lot more attention should be brought to bear on when the lecture works, when it doesn't, uh, what alternatives are there to lecturing that might engage students more fully and allow them to learn better. Uh, and my frustration is not so much that people continue to lecture as, as the fact that people just don't even talk about this. You know, there have been people um, who have for, for decades uh, been saying, take a look at the evidence on this. And it, it's just not something that rises uh, high on the list of priorities of, of faculty members. And I think I think given its importance, it it should. You know, why does it persist? Because it's the way all of us were taught. And as human beings, we tend to think, well, if it worked for me, it's going to work for the students that I teach. Uh, and, uh, and it leads, I think, to a, a certain resistance to change despite the fact that there's evidence that change is necessary. Tenure is a complicated question. And obviously the portion of the book, one of the portions of the book that is likely to provoke the most polarizing response is the, the section on tenure. My argument is not so much that tenure in and of itself is a good or a bad thing. 
that I have views on that. My argument is that it's almost impossible not to see that tenure is an impediment to change. If tenure is in a very effective way of preserving things as they are uh, and of preventing change, tenure is mostly about what it can stop people from doing. Um, it's not a lot about what it can enable people to do. Uh, and it's fine in an industry that doesn't require dramatic change. It's fine perhaps at an institution like Harvard that's gonna go on being Harvard for the indefinite future. But if you're an institution where you need to change your curriculum uh, or your budget model in response to external pressures or student interests and demands, tenure makes it really hard. Uh, and we just have to accept that. Now you can argue that the trade-off is worth it, that it's worth not being able to change to have tenure. But I don't think you can argue that tenure is something that helps institutions change. And that's that's my fundamental argument. Well, and I, I wanna be clear, um, your, your argument here is very different from the public dialogue, particularly what you hear coming out of the red states in terms of bashing higher education and bashing the tenure system. That's not where you're coming from at all. Right. Uh, and I, I try to make that distinction in the book. You know, the yeah. attacks on tenure that are coming from from legislatures uh, yeah. tend to be politically motivated and have more to do with uh, the perceived political biases of faculty members and with a desire to exercise more legislative and political control. Uh, and, and I say very clearly in the book that, that that cure is way worse than the disease. That is, if I were given a choice between the current system and a system in which legislatures made decisions about the curriculum or hiring, I would keep the current system every time. Uh, my, my argument is very different and it is that um, higher education needs to change. The change needs to come ideally from within. And one of the things that's making that more difficult is the fact that uh, tenure for a whole variety of reasons locks things in place, often for a very long time. Uh, and that that is, not, that is not ideal for an industry, I think, that is facing uh, a, a long list of external pressures that should probably lead it to change. Now, in the book, you make the case for increasing the role of non-tenure track faculty in higher education. So can you say more about that as an alternative and how how does it work? And if you think about a place like McAllister, how how viable is that idea? Well, what would it take to move in that direction? So again, just to be to be clear, um, I would say that my argument is not so much that um, we need to, well, certainly not that we need to exploit faculty uh, by giving them um, a lot of work and not compensating them well for it. Uh, my argument, there are several of them. One is that the presence on many faculty members of tenure track faculty uh, makes it much more difficult to, to fairly compensate non-tenure track faculty. And so it's one of the reasons why you see so many who, who essentially have to work as underpaid gig laborers. Um, you know, my ideal system would be one in which everybody gets fairly compensated and everybody has 
has appropriate job security, which could take the form of multi-year contracts. They could take the form of very long multi-year contracts. Um, my argument about NTT faculty is also that, and it gets back to the question of incentive. If you look at the groups within higher education right now that have the incentive to change things, um, tenured faculty are not among them. Non-tenured track faculty are. Uh, and I think it's really important to engage the groups that are incentivized to change things in discussions about the institutional future. And I would include graduate students in that category. Uh, and so I think engaging non-tenure track faculty in discussions about change would bring a very different perspective. Uh, you know, at McAllister, we really did work pretty hard uh, and admittedly with some external pressure, threats of unionization, uh, which ultimately did not happen uh, to improve the situation of non-tenure track faculty. So we gave them longer contracts. We made more of them full-time. We made more of them eligible for benefits. All of them were, we made all of them uh, eligible to participate in departmental discussions and votes. Mm -hmm. All of them were eligible to attend and in most cases vote at faculty meetings. Uh, and I think it, I think it both improved their level of engagement with the institution and also improved some of the decisions we were making because they, they tended to have a very different perspective than their tenured colleagues. So I, I think engaging those constituencies that are not incentivized to resist change would be a good thing. Let me go back to other structural um, elements. You also talk about the calendar mm -hmm. as something that uh, makes change difficult. Can you say a little bit more about that? So if we are totally honest with ourselves in higher education, we have to acknowledge that the academic calendar really makes no sense. Uh, if we're talking about trying to, to lower the cost of higher education and increase its, its graduation rates uh, and increase student, and I would include non-traditional student, um, access to higher education. Uh, it, it began a long time ago for a whole variety of reasons, uh, but the fact that you have these very, very expensive physical plants, which are essentially only in full operation for two thirds of the year at most colleges, not all, there are some that, that have different kinds of calendars, uh, and that it takes four years for students to complete 120 credits, um, when there's no evidence that educationally that is better than three. In fact, there is some evidence of learning loss during long, long gaps. Um, it's, it's kind of shocking that there aren't more institutions that have said, you know, the, the easiest way for us to reduce the cost of a four-year degree is make it a three-year degree. You know, the, the, the four-year degree, of course, is not universal around the world. Some, some places have three-year degrees. Uh, the, the calendar at, at ALU is a three-year calendar. It's, it's essentially what we would consider three semesters each year divided by three-week breaks. Uh, and so you get the requisite number of credits in. Students and, and faculty still get a break. Uh, but students are able to graduate in three years, so they only have to pay three years worth of tuition and they get into the job market sooner. Uh, now, we are able to do that because ALU is very explicitly a teaching institution. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the most 
vociferous resistance to changing the calendar comes from institutions where research is a high priority of faculty. And they say, I need those breaks uh, to do my research, to write my books, to, to work in my laboratory. Uh, and, you know, that is that is fair. Um, and it is particularly applicable to research universities. But the fact that the calendar exists, not just at research universities, but at virtually every uh, four-year college um, raises the question of why it does and and why more places haven't haven't tried to reduce cost and reduce time by shortening that calendar. You talk about the need for transformative change in higher education, and you've already talked about some of the specific changes that you think uh, are are called for. What are the changes that you believe are most urgent? So if you were if you were going into a, a college as a president today, starting over or another institution, where would you start? And is there any low-hanging fruit that you see? Uh, you know, there there isn't there isn't that much fruit that, that hangs very low. Um, look, overwhelmingly the most pressing need for change is driven by economics. Uh, and if you if you take out of the equation perhaps seventy five or hundred, and that might be generous. Colleges or universities that have large endowments are very highly selective and seem seem quite secure at least for the for the medium term future. Uh, the rest of the institutions in the country, and there are over four thousand of them, are facing tremendous demographic and economic pressure. Uh, and the cost of college keeps going up more rapidly than the ability and the willingness of people to pay for it. The average discount rate now at private colleges in the United States is over 56%. So higher education is essentially on sale uh, for more than half off, and it goes up every year. Uh, so if if you were if you were um, Nordstrom Rack, it would be like you were marking down your products more every, every year. And obviously that's an unsustainable model. Sooner or later, you get to a 100% discount and you're giving it away for free. So the most pressing need is to bend that cost curve, to make quality education available to students at a lower cost of production. Uh, and that means mostly looking at the way that education is delivered. The, the single largest expense on virtually any college campus is people. It's typically two thirds of the budget. Nobody is comfortable talking about this, but unless we figure out a way to be less expensive and more efficient in delivering a quality education, uh, then we're going to have a, an increasing problem. To me, there are two things that higher education really needs to look at much more seriously. One, obviously, is technology, which a lot of people have spoken about and, and written about. I think, despite the fact that a lot of the most important research about technology and learning happens at colleges, colleges have been very slow to adopt that and figure out, say, is there really a, a downside rather than lecturing in person to 50 students to delivering the same lecture remotely to 500 or 5,000? Uh, and is that a way of reaching more students and lowering the cost? The other, in some ways, is the opposite end of the, the spectrum. And that is what I would describe as experiential learning. Uh, 
taking advantage of the world beyond the boundaries of the campus to help students learn. Uh, and the reason that interests me so much is that it does two things potentially. One is make learning actually better because it's learning through doing. And the other is lowering the cost because there's a whole world of people out there who have the potential to help educate our students uh, at a much lower cost than hiring lots of new faculty and sitting in small groups in classrooms. Uh, and so I think higher education needs to take a much more serious look at both of those things, at what technology can do uh, and at what experiential learning can do. And my fear is if traditional colleges and universities don't do that, there are gonna be disruptors from without who do. And I, I'm not always confident in the motives of some of those disruptors, particularly for-profit disruptors, whose motive is to make a profit. Uh, and say what you want about most colleges and universities, and people certainly criticize them in lots of ways, they are nonprofits. Uh, and their success is measured on the basis of how well they fulfill their mission, not on the basis of what kind of returns they deliver to shareholders. So I think these things will happen. I, I want them to happen and hope they happen from within higher education. In an era of ongoing disruption, many education experts, educators, and families are calling for change in our pre-K through grade 12 schools. At Baypath University, we are meeting this need by teaching our doctoral students how to reimagine organizations, make tough decisions, and re-examine the traditional ways of doing business. Our EDD in Educational Leadership with a Concentration in Transformative School Leadership program is designed for pre-K through grade 12 educators and related professionals, as well as school and district leaders who want to advance in their careers and develop the mindset and skill set for leading and managing change. All coursework is delivered entirely online and taught by highly supportive faculty who are skilled in working with adult learners in a virtual environment. The program offers three tracks, a 54 credit track for those who already have a master's degree in any field from an accredited institution, a 30 credit ABD completion option, as well as a 36 credit EDS or CAGS bridge program. If you are passionate about creating innovative and high quality educational experiences at the pre-K through 12 grade levels, if you find it exciting to navigate change and lead transformation, then this program may be a good fit for you. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd to learn more. You know, when you're in the president's role, you have to be a very positive face for the institution. Um, your messaging, for the most part, really needs to be very positive and hopeful. Now that you're out of the role, and you know your book, you do a wonderful job of really outlining the financial challenges um, and the the difficulties. Where where are you in terms of hopefulness? You know, particularly for small colleges. I'm hopeful but realistic, and the realistic part is that right now there's an imbalance in American higher education between supply and demand. That is, we are an aging population. The, the median age in the U.S. is 38, the median age in Africa is 19. 
And we know um, some people want to ignore it or make light of it, but we know that what's described as the demographic cliff is real. And that particularly in areas like where we're located in, in the Northeast, the Midwest, uh, the number of high school age students is declining and is about to, to decline very, very sharply. Uh, so there are gonna be fewer students uh, to enroll in colleges. We also know, and this is particularly disturbing, that in many states, a lower percentage of high school students are choosing to go directly to college. Uh, it's true in Massachusetts. It's true in many Midwestern states. And so there just aren't as many customers uh, as there are seats right now in American higher education. And that's going to have to right-size itself. We know that. And if institutions with a lot of brand strength decide to get a little bigger, that will just make the situation even more challenging for small colleges. So realistically, I think over the next 10, 20 years, there, you will see a decline in the number, particularly of small private colleges, and a decline in the number probably of, of the less selective regional publics uh, to align more accurately with the actual social demand. So you will see some contraction. Um, it's, it's just inevitable. Uh, but I also do have faith that, you know, there are a lot of smart people in higher education. We, we have a tendency, not just in higher ed, but in this country to wait until things are on the verge of collapse before we fix them. And so I, I do think that the increasing pressure on higher ed will lead some institutions to try to be more innovative, to offer lower cost offerings that are also of high quality uh, and find new ways to new ways to survive, meet the needs of different student populations. You know, one of the answers to the demographic cliff is to serve populations that are an 18 to 22 year olds. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who want more education, but they're not gonna show up at nine o'clock in the morning, four or five days a week on a college campus. That's just not the way their lives are. So I think there are gonna be colleges that adjust themselves and try to need the, meet the needs of that market uh, by using technology and experiential learning uh, and and have the opportunity to reinvent themselves. So will it be will it be easy? No. Uh, but you know there's a there's a, a a phrase that's painted on the entryways to the both ALU campuses and it's a phrase, that the founder Fred Swanaker likes to use, and it is simple, do hard things. You know, it is the responsibility of those of us who have positions of privilege and influence not to do easy things, to do hard things. And so will changing higher education be easy? No, but you know, if you accept the leadership position in this, in this industry, then I think the challenge is to do hard things and change is hard, but it's necessary. I want to ask you also about shared governance mm -hmm. and how your experience, well, the concept of shared governance, um, how it, it influenced your decision-making over your time as president and how you see that needing to evolve along with everything else that you've talked about. Well, first of all, it's important, and people often misunderstand this, it's important to realize that, that most college and university presidents 
have much less power than people think. Uh, I would liken them more to mayors of small cities and towns than to CEOs of corporations, where you are constrained in all kinds of ways uh, by other other points of influence and power. Uh, and you know, if you're a college president, uh, you know, shared governance in the in the 1966 AAUP document talks specifically about three groups: the board of trustees, the president, and the faculty. Uh, and sharing of power among those three groups. Uh, and so you just have to you just have to understand that as a president and realize you can't act like Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek and say, make it so. Uh, you have to figure out a way how to work change through uh, that that very, very challenging process. You know, my experience is has been that, not only does it slow down change, but it waters down the nature of change. Uh, consensus is not is not compatible with dramatic change because dramatic change makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if what you seek is consensus, you're going to end up with something that is the least objectionable to the most people. Uh, and you know that's what I found happened too often with with shared governance that uh, good ideas would would just die uh, or emerge from the process as much less interesting ideas because you were seeking, you were, your goal was input rather than outcome. Uh, and, um, you know, I think if everyone involved in shared governance is ultimately pulling in the same direction with the same set of institutional goals, then it can work. But that is just not, it's not the reality on college campuses and, and given the way higher education has evolved. So you end up too often with conflict, stalemate, um, being stuck in quicksand. You know, I, I think most people who study organizational change will tell you that smaller groups make much better decisions than gigantic groups. And so I think what the interesting challenge for colleges is to figure out not how to make presidents kings. I think that that's a mistake, a big mistake, but how to find the right groups of people on a campus, um, people who are interested in change, smart, engaged, uh, and give them an opportunity to really be kind of laboratories of innovation, to work a problem. Uh, to come up with good ideas, and then to pilot those ideas. We both know you can't force lots of things on people at a college. Uh, but that doesn't prevent you from trying out piloting interesting ideas that might, through their success, win people over. Uh, so, you know, I, I think a, a structure that that gives the opportunity for there to be pockets of innovation across a campus and not have everything pass through the grinder of, of the overall institutional shared governance is, is someplace that, that higher education just needs to go. I would agree with that. The challenge for presidents is if they try to make changes in other ways, oftentimes uh, they're up against shorter presidencies in some cases, right? So um, it is, you know, it's, it's undoubtedly true. There was just an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education entitled, You Couldn't Pay Me Enough to Be a College President. 
uh, written by a faculty member uh, with a lot of courage, I, I must I must say, given what he wrote. But uh, it's a it's a very hard job, and it, it is undoubtedly the case that presidents who try to to try to really shake things up in any meaningful way uh, are typically risking their jobs. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's up to everyone to to do the the personal calculus about how much you're willing to risk and when. I I'm inclined to 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 think that presidents who have been serving for longer periods and have less to lose and have maybe built up a little bit more capital they need to be the ones who are pushing for some of these changes it's not fair to expect a brand new president to come in even though every presidential job ad asks for it and to be the change agent mm -hmm. uh, i'd like to see more presidents in the last third of their presidency uh push for change uh because you know that on, quite honestly, again, the risks are, are are lesser. You know, by the time I'd been at McAllister for 15 years, um, you know, I, I knew that if if people wanted me to leave, that would be just fine. It was not a risk. Whereas if you had asked me the same question in year three, I would have said, you know, sheesh, I don't, I don't particularly want to lose my job at this point in my life. Yeah, sure. So tell me more about the African Leadership University. You've mentioned it a few times. I know that it's had quite an influence on your own thinking, your views about the American higher education system. So uh, tell me more about it, the leadership, how it, how it functions. So um, it's designed to meet an overwhelming need. Africa has, as I said earlier, the youngest population in the world, 19, the fastest growing population in the world and the population that's least well-served by higher education. Uh, and so the, the founder of ALU, Fred Swanaker, is a McAllister graduate, and that's how I got involved in the project. And he's founded a number of different educational institutions and organizations on the continent, all with the same goal uh, of providing higher education to more people, and of educating the next generation of leaders for Africa, because uh, as, as he would be the first to say, there's really been a failure of leadership uh, in most places across the continent. Uh, so the goal of ALU, which was founded in 2015, so it's really still a startup, uh, is to provide essentially excellence at scale. You know, is there a way to provide at scale to reach not dozens or tens or hundreds of students, but thousands of students uh, with an education that is of high quality, uh, that is affordable in a continent where most people don't have very much money, that will enable them to get jobs on a continent where people need jobs, uh, and that will prepare them with the, the both hard skills and personal skills to be ethical and entrepreneurial in their lives. And so that's that is the that's the design problem, the design challenge of ALU. Uh, and the answer so far has been a model that is, first of all, it's three years. Uh, tuition is $3,000, not 30,000 or 60,000. And even then a lot of students, right now the majority of students are getting some sort of a scholarship. Uh, 
and an education that relies much less heavily on faculty with terminal degrees, since there is also a dramatic shortage of faculty with PhDs in Africa. Uh, faculty are more often thought of as guides or coaches. Uh, students are much more self-directed in their learning. Uh, and it's a hybrid model. So there is some on campus, there is some experiential, there is some online. And students don't choose a major, they choose a mission. Uh, there are, there are the university identifies uh, 12 grand challenges and opportunities for the continent. Uh, things like um, urbanization, uh, climate change, agriculture, uh, women's empowerment and gender equity, the arts, uh, and students choose one of these areas and they build their education around a personal mission. Uh, so there aren't 40 different majors and departments, it's much more narrowly focused. Uh, and by focusing it more narrowly, it's much easier to reduce the number of people you need to hire because you're not trying to fill 40 different departments. Uh, so far, you know, when I joined ALU um, a little a little under three years ago, there were about 800 students. Now there are about 2,300. So it's growing. Uh, the retention rates are comparable to those at selective American colleges, not at a typical American online university. Students get jobs much more rapidly than most college graduates in Africa. Uh, and we are learning something new every day about how people learn uh, and how much, you know, this goes back to John Dewey in the late 19th century. You know, how fully can students be the owners of their own learning journey? Uh, and how can that change the way we think about education? And when I see what some of these students are doing, students who grew up in refugee camps or in, in towns without electricity, and after three years at ALU, the kinds of things that they know and can do, you, no one can tell me that, that education of this kind can't work uh, because I'm seeing it working. Uh, and the question is, is it importable, is a model like this importable to more developed countries? Um, a model that is much less expensive, much less reliant on faculty with terminal degrees, that makes the student the owner of their learning journey, and that uses all of these different ways of learning uh, to, to help students become ethical and entrepreneurial leaders and um, better people and, and employable. So very much a work in progress, hardest, hardest problem, I think, I've ever been involved in trying to solve, but you know, it's it's really making progress and, and we're learning a lot and it's it's just super inspiring. And I was gonna ask you about the importability potential because um, so much of what you're describing does address many of the challenges that you have identified within the US higher ed system. So we were actually working with the Carnegie Foundation yeah, uh, yeah. for the advancement of teaching in California for exactly that reason. You know, Carnegie um, and Tim Knowles, the current president of Carnegie, is is keenly interested in making higher education more accessible to those who are not being served right now. And his interest in ALU is, is in precisely that question. Is it importable? And so the last in, in each of the last two years, we've brought 
a group of 15 to 20 ALU students to spend a month uh, at the Carnegie uh, uh, home in, in Palo Alto and on the Stanford campus. And they have, they've worked with American students, particularly st students from underserved backgrounds. Uh, they've worked with, with Carnegie staff, with Stanford faculty, uh, and we're trying to, to gauge uh, the extent to which this model would also work with populations in the U.S. that can't afford to go to college and that uh, can't, affo can't, can't afford to be on a campus in a, in a physical way for four years. And, you know, I, I think that, I think it is definitely importable. The, the, the resistance is not, the problem is not the nature of the model. The problem is in the resistance of the traditional higher education establishment, including accreditors, I would add, to, to embracing the model. So I think, is it, is it something that can, that can spread? Yes. There are places, there are schools in other parts of the world, in Southeast Asia, in South America, that are trying versions of the same thing. Uh, and, you know, this could end up being an example of what's called reverse innovation, where innovation that takes place in situations of constraint eventually filters its way back in, into more developed economies. Uh, because these places have to do something different. They have no choice. Uh, so can it affect the way higher education in the US and Europe works? Yes, uh, well, and I, I think eventually it will. Well, that's very hopeful and inspire. It's an inspiring model. So I will continue to watch this. So you teach emerging higher mm -hmm. ed leaders in your classes at Harvard, and you're you're obviously doing a lot of thinking these days about leadership. What do you tell your students? Uh, what advice do you give them, if any, about preparing as emerging as the next generation of leaders in higher ed? Well. One of the things that I tell them that I try to prepare them to, to do is you need to understand the system you're moving into if you want to change it. Uh, and, you know, the students that I teach are are typically very passionate about, about changing things. Um, but unless you understand what you're trying to change, you're not going to be effective at changing it. So for instance, unless you understand the economics of higher ed uh, and why it is, for instance, that so many schools use merit aid uh, and uh, how an endowment actually works and what is driving up the cost of higher education, unless you understand those things, you can't change them. So, you know, the, the, it's like being a new president. The, the first key to changing something is understanding it. Uh, and then, you know, the second is do hard things. You know, don't, the path of least resistance in higher ed is usually not the right path. So, um, you know, be patient because as we both discussed, it takes time. Uh, Try to put yourself in environments when you're looking for jobs where you think there's a receptiveness to change. You know, one of the things I've seen, unfortunately, with some of my students is that, you know, they're passionate about change. They get hired by very prestigious institutions and they realize this ain't going to happen here. And they get frustrated. And so don't always go for the brand name. Sometimes working at colleges that are 
Um, less less rich and famous, but more open to change can be a lot more fulfilling. Uh, so I, I encourage them to ask to take a to ask that question about any potential uh, workplace that they move into. You know, if I want if I if I'm interested in change, are they also interested in change? And if the answer is no, you're probably going to be frustrated. Good advice. So we have a signature question we ask of all of our guests, and it's it's uh, a, a little bit of a different spin on the question I just asked you about advice. Uh, in this case, um, I'm curious if you could leave just one transformative idea that you believe would shape the future of higher education in a really impactful, positive way, what would it be and why? Is this it's a big question with a lot of possible answers. Uh, I would I would say that it's really important at the end of the day for anyone involved in higher education to remember that it, it exists to, to fulfill a social good. Uh, and you need to put the student always, the student at the center of your decision making. I think in all honesty, and I, look, I was a faculty member for 15 years. Um, most colleges and universities are built around the interests of the faculty uh, and structured around the, the interests of the faculty. Uh, my, my advice underscored to people in higher education is center the student. Uh, always make decisions with the interests of the student in mind. Uh, I've sat through too many faculty meetings where students just never come up, uh, and and that's a problem. Uh, so uh, keep in mind the mission. Obviously, you have to be financially sustainable, no margin, no mission. Uh, but keep in mind the mission and focus on the social good and focus on the student. All right. Thank you. Those those are wonderful parting words of wisdom and advice. So Brian, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm really glad that you're continuing to lend your voice to the higher education world and community. It's it's very much needed now more than ever. So thank you for joining well, me today. Thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been a fun conversation. And that's a wrap on today's Ingenious You episode. A very big thank you for tuning in and sharing this time with us. Don't forget to stay in the loop with our Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice, the hub that brings this podcast to life. Chellup is also behind the free monthly webinars on all things cutting edge in higher ed and offers some terrific certificate programs to boot. Have you checked out our YouTube channel yet? It's where the magic of our top-rated episodes from past seasons comes alive with video interviews. Hit that subscribe button so you're always in the know with our latest, greatest content. Like what you heard? Take a moment to rate and review Ingenious You on your podcast platform of choice. Spread the word to your friends and colleagues and invite them to join our Ingenious You circle. Until next time, keep innovating, keep inspiring, and keep making a difference. Stay safe, stay connected, and above all, stay ingenious. Stay ingenious.